Welcome to the What Dreamers Do podcast. I'm your host, Carla Gover, an Appalachian musician, flatfoot dancer, mama, creative, and dreamer from Kentucky. I'm on a mission to inspire others to realize their dreams and live their most creative lives. Grab you a mason jar full of sweet tea or something a little stronger and pull up a chair because it's time to get your dream on. Well, hello, dreamers. Welcome back to another episode of the What Dreamers Do podcast. And I'm so excited to be with you this week because I am not alone. I have a very special guest with me sitting right here beside me, and his name is Sam Gleaves. And if you haven't heard about Sam, he's going to be telling you more about himself, but I will just let you know that he is a multi-instrumentalist from Appalachia, He is a songwriter, beautiful singer, harmony singer. He is an educator. He is the Bluegrass Ensemble Director, as well as the Appalachian Instruments Instructor at Berea College in Berea, Kentucky. He has made an album and had albums produced by Kathy Fink and Marcy Markser. He has played and recorded music with some heavy hitters like Tim O'Brien, Lori Lewis, and Janice Ian. And I am so happy to be able to chat with him this week. And I know you guys are going to love hearing from him. Thanks, Sam. Thank you, Carla. I admire you so much as an artist and you have really been an inspiration to me, truly. And so this is an honor to get to speak with you. Well, in your, at your kitchen table, where what could be better? It's the best. It's where all the best things happen is around the kitchen table, right? In the kitchen somehow. Well, you know, there's so much that we can talk about and so much that we will talk about, but a good place to start is always at the beginning. So um, maybe you could share with people how you came to start playing music and where that was, where you grew up and kind of your early life as a musician? I was born and raised in Withville, Virginia, which is a small town at the edge of the Blue Ridge Mountains. My father's family had been there for like way back many generations. Uh, I also feel that I should say now that although my father's family has been in Wythe County since around the time of the Revolutionary War, they were living on stolen land. My mom's family, uh, I think my great-great-grandmother's generation on my, in my mom's family were the ones that moved to Withful. So I felt very rooted there, like my family was very rooted there. I knew all four of my grandparents and a great-grandmother growing up. Wow. And yes, I was so fortunate. And my mom and dad don't play music but they love music. And my mom would always play women singer songwriters like Natalie Merchant in the car and we would sing along. And, and then my dad loved hardcore uh, country bluegrass, you know, like flat and scrugs and right. doc Watson and, and that sort of thing. Uh, and they just really loved music in a deep way, both of them and encouraged me and my brother to put music in our lives. You know, if we wanted music lessons, 
they would always support that, you know. And my grandma is a singer, and she plays clarinet and piano and sang in a, a quartet, a woman quartet in her church, and she directed children's choir in her church and, you know, would always be part of any kind of music event, music life at her church. And so I guess she was really the one that encouraged me the most to sing, you know. If the children's choir was four people, she would push me to the front, you know, in this little Methodist church. Uh, so s- singing, was that your first introduction yes. into music? Yeah, I love to sing. And I always loved to sing, but I was real shy about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, still am in a lot of ways. And my my grandma was the one saying, you know, you have a pretty voice. You should you should sing, you know. <laughs> and I, I still love to to sing with my grandma. She's my only living grandparent. Now. Oh, wow. Yeah. And she is really, really special to me and has been a very loving, encouraging force. What's the life. song that you guys sing together? In the Garden, always. Oh, yes. Yes. It's the best. Yeah, I know. It's, the harmony on that is, mm. is the prettiest. Uh, an Uncloudy Day. She loves Uncloudy oh, Day, that's too. another great one. Yes. And uh, so I sang, and I was really fortunate to have piano lessons when I was a kid, but I quit because I got frustrated reading music. I, mm. I really was just memorizing it. I wasn't mm-hmm. learning to read. I wasn't practicing really because what I love to do was sit down at the piano and just make up melodies mm-hmm. and just sing. Where, you know, I loved like uh, Tolkien books and fantasy sort of thing. So I would just like make up words in different languages and be <laughs> running around in the yard making up these songs and singing to myself. I was kind of a wild I can I can see it I can see little Sam running around (laughs) singing all Tolkien and elf songs (laughs) yeah yeah. that was me and um then when I was a teenager I got interested in like folk rock and stuff from the 70s like Fleetwood Mac like they were like my icons (laughs) you know like when I was a teenager and and then I got into like Bob Dylan and Joan Baez and then I would read in the notes to their records, oh, this is a Carter family song Mm -hmm. or whatever. And my dad had taken me to the Carter family fold. I mean, it's so near where I grew up. Um, My dad was even living in Bristol, so very close to where the Carter family were from, you know. But I didn't get that that was Appalachian music from the area that I was from. I didn't understand that until I was like a teenager. Um, Isn't that amazing? I I think about this all the time because... Um, you know, my mother went to a settlement school and there were a lot of people in Appalachia, myself included to a certain extent that were told the message that we were given by the, by the outside mass media is that, well, you need to get some culture. You need to learn how to appreciate opera and ballet. And, um, you know, people, (laughs) my friends hear me talk about this a lot, but it, it really is relevant because, because a lot of times we aren't aware of or maybe properly appreciative of the riches that are all around us. And I had a similar moment. (laughs) It was so funny. My dad um, got a free subscription when I was like nine or 10 years old to food and wine magazine. Like somebody just randomly sent him this free subscription and I loved trying the recipes out. Of course we had to drive all the way to hazard to get some of the ingredients because Whitesburg didn't have them. But there was one issue, and it was called something like Food Delicacies of Appalachia. And I remember they had fiddlehead ferns, 
and they had ramps and there were morels in it. And I was like, oh, wow, I've seen this stuff. And I went out, I ran up through the woods and gathered all the produce that was growing there and cooked it all. And I was, it took this outside validation. Representation matters. That's what I'm saying. So yeah, the fact that you came to uh, some of the awareness of what a treasure trove that you had in terms of where you lived and the historical and cultural background around you via Bob Dylan and Joan Baez, I think that's not necessarily atypical. That's pretty common. Yeah, I would say so. Um, and, well, for instance, there's a story I like to recall from that time. So my dad took me to the Carter family fold uh, which was established by Jeanette Carter in honor of her parents. You know, they have live music and dance in there. You're probably flat-footed there. Uh, and when I was into this folk rock stuff and mm-hmm. I was a teenager, you know, when you're a teenager, you don't like what your parents like no matter of what course. it is, right? So I was there and we were taken in the show and around and the intermission, I asked my dad if we could leave or if I could go home, you know, because I wasn't driving yet. <laughs> and dad said, well, yeah, I know you'd rather be listening to Janis Joplin, but this is good music, too, you know. <laughs> and um, the woman on stage playing the auto harp is the first time I'd seen anybody play an auto harp. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was I just loved the sound of it. Though. And that was kind of what hooked me. I was like, OK, this is pretty cool, you know. And come to find out her name was Rhoda Kemp this singer and musician, she had taught Jim Lloyd who became my teacher. And, uh, my mom, when I got interested in guitar, I was beating around on it, trying to teach myself to play. I had some cousins who played and they helped me a little bit. Uh, but she was saying, do you want lessons? Do you want guitar lessons? I said, yeah, I would be excited about that. And she said, well, there's a guy in rural retreat, which is the it's in the same county. It's the community where my mom teaches school. She said, well, Jim Lloyd in Rural Retreat, he teaches music lessons at his barbershop. Let's go see how you like it. And she dropped me off in there. I was wearing a Bob Dylan tie-dyed shirt. I went in with my guitar. I had this like real sparkly inlaid, flashy-looking guitar. And uh, I went in there, and uh, Jim Lloyd was sitting there playing. And there were... Uh, there was a young person playing call hammer banjo, a young person playing fiddle, and he was playing rhythm guitar, and they were playing Fork of Deer. Uh-huh. And I'll never forget how driving it was. I mean, I'd never seen dance music like that up that close and right. seen young people my age with a uh, man who's, you know, 20 some years older than him playing together. And I was hooked. I was like, oh my gosh, I got to learn how to do this, you know? So Fork of Deer was the gateway drug. Oh, yes, it was. <laughs> and I remember watching this young fellow claw hammer the banjo, and I thought, I could never learn how to do that. That looks so complicated. <laughs> or it sounds so complicated. You know, so anyway, I, Jim was really generous to me. He taught me for several years uh, through high school, and he took me around to Fiddler's Conventions with him before I could drive, you know. Mm-hmm. He would invite me to everything, every concert that he did. Because you were right there in the middle of it all. You didn't have to drive far. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The Gaylax Fiddler's Convention, I lived for that when yeah. I was a kid in the summertime and camping out for a week and wandering around to different campsites and meeting people like Rhoda Kemp, who are master musicians. Um you know, 
the Roan Mountain Hilltoppers would be there playing. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, just like legendary old time musicians. Uh, and and Jim knew them all. Was friends with them. All. He introduced me to Sheila K. Adams. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember in one weekend I saw Sheila K. Jim Lloyd, David Holt, and Andrina Belcher. <laughs> and I've been playing the banjo for two weeks. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And so anyway, there was, he was so good to include young people in, in what he was doing. He taught all kinds of young people and people of all generations. We played for a square dance every Wednesday night at Elizabeth LaPrell's family. Wow. Uh, they re- had a summer camp. And in uh, case you don't know these names, you guys, these are all like icons of traditional folk music. Of Appalachia. And and they're just down-home friendly people that mm-hmm. were neighbors. And, uh, yeah, so I, I was really fortunate to grow up where and when I did. And I'm thankful to Jim for his uh, generosity. So at this time, you know, you're, you're learning different instruments. You're soaking it up. You're learning to appreciate that you're drinking right from the well that so many people have had to come and seek out and you had the, the good fortune to be born right there into it. Um, were you also exploring songwriting at that time still? I was, uh, you know, because I, I loved Joan Baez and Stevie Nicks and all these people that were, you know, like that were songwriters, Writers, you know? Yeah. And then I learned, Oh, there are songwriters like Ola Bell Reed who are from Appalachia, Hazel Dickens, you know, these people who, uh, are writing about their experience as a person from the mountains. And in the style, in the sort of traditional sounding Right, style. right. And uh, Gene Ritchie, uh, that was when I heard of who Gene Ritchie was because I got interested in the mountain dulcimer. And, uh, you know, Gene Ritchie, I admire her as much as a songwriter, as, as any of her many other Absolutely. gifts. And, um, yeah, so then I got interested it more in the traditional music and that led me to Berea College in twenty ten. Uh and I've loved Kentucky ever since. <laughs> I haven't been able to leave yet. Well so. it'll it'll get in your blood and Kentucky is certainly happy to claim you now. Thank you. One thing about that time in my life, when I was first learning to play old time music, I felt like because I didn't grow up on a farm or I didn't grow up in a family that played old time music directly like in my home mm. that I was uh, a fake somehow or something or like that I couldn't learn to play old time music you know uh that I didn't have a right to it or so because I grew up in a small town you mm-hmm. know and I um my grandma and my great aunt talked about living on a farm you know no electricity helping their neighbors with farm chores you know I mean their their life out in the cove area where they grew up was very different than mine but and there and there people played old time music, um, but it skipped a couple generations mm-hmm. in my family, and so um, that's something that I've been exploring ever since. Is you know like what does it mean to be a modern kid that played video games and clawhammer banjo, you know, and uh, grew up you know with like a, a lot of in addition to learning from a lot of people who were very generous with me, I was. Um, learning from archival recordings and people were giving me CDs and things all the time that I was learning music from as well. Well, I think some version of that has always been true. And I think that that one of the things that maybe is erroneous about how we think about how this music is passed on is that there was some 
mystical point in Appalachian history where the mountaineers were so cut off from the rest of the world that they all they did was play old time music and they they didn't have that pop culture influence. But I think they always have had the pop culture influence. I mean, I make the joke because I do, as you know, a version of Cindy Lauper's Girls Just Want to Have Fun on the banjo. They're, Iconic. <laughs> there weren't very many video games when I was a kid, but, uh, you know, I was listening to MTV, and I kind of wonder if the phenomenon that you're describing, I mean, I know what you're saying, and I think maybe media stereotypes cause us to to feel that way about ourselves as Appalachians, like unless I totally grew up on the farm with the outhouse with no electricity, then I'm not an authentic purveyor of Appalachian music, which is not true. Right. <laughs> but also I think that Appalachians have never been completely cut off from the rest of the world. I mean, maybe there's been some isolation and, and yeah, living in a rural area where you've got to entertain yourself has caused um, people to, to play more music probably than mm -hmm. they might have if they'd been living in a big city with a bunch of nightlife. But on the other hand, I think um, music from other places, other peoples, from the radio has, has been influencing. It's a give and take. You know, there is there. No man is an island. No culture is an island. Absolutely. Um, so I kind of wonder if what you were feeling was in it some measure of imposter syndrome, which almost every creative person I know feels in some or many forms or fashions. Oh, I think so. And you articulated that so well, because I do think that it is a limitation and a stereotype to believe that only rural people can play old time music or that only people that have a direct lineage in their families can play old time music or a direct lineage of learning knee to knee in person with people. And I was, I was so lucky to have that, mm -hmm. you know, when I was young and, uh, but when I started when I was 13 or 14, mm -hmm. I felt like I was late and behind the times <laughs> because I was seeing people at Fiddler's Conventions mm -hmm. that could burn up whatever instrument That's they had right. and they were younger than me, you right. know, or whatever. And True. I thought, oh my gosh, I'm behind. Like what? Or or how, I've never learned to do that. So yeah, I think people, the stereotypes and the imposter syndrome are woven together. And uh, I just wanted to say that uh, to say that, you know, artists like be responsible about the representing the culture that the music that you play, but also, you know, be your whole self and don't be limited by that. You know, the, right. the stereotypes that say that this music only looks a certain way, talks a certain way, you know, um, this music is bound by, play like by geographic boundaries and all, you know, the, all these things are right. Well, difficult. I, I think it's the nature of Appalachian music and probably folk music in general to be inclusive, to go past barriers and borders and to break down the walls between people. And, um, obviously we're at a time, like you said, where we have to be mindful of, issues of cultural appropriation or really just to me, it boils down to respect and yeah. context and just being mindful about what you're doing and being respectful. And I think there's a lot of room for um, no matter where you're from <laughs> mm -hmm. or what your background is, you know, humans love to explore music and share music and 
mix together different kinds of music. And, yes. you know, I'm all about that. Um, I agree. So at what point on your journey as a musician did you start to produce songs that you felt comfortable sharing or that you started getting a good response from? When was the time or what was the point where you started to think of yourself as a real songwriter? Well, the Stanley Brothers advertised for Martha Whiteflower, so I'm going to do a sort of cooking advertisement here to support this podcast. I have a confession to make. I love to cook from scratch, but many nights these days I'm only cooking for my son and myself. When I'm busy and tired, sometimes it's a little bit too easy to get takeout, so I decided to try some of those meal kit boxes that I saw advertised, and I went through four different ones until I found the one that I like best, Home Chef. Every week, I get to pick four meals that I think my family would like, and they send the ingredients right to my door. This isn't processed food either. It's just healthy meats, fresh vegetables, and grains that I prepare. It usually takes me 30 minutes or less to get supper on the table, and my picky son loves every meal. Plus, it's way cheaper than takeout. If you want to try it out, just go to carlagover.com forward slash supper. I don't get paid for this endorsement. I just truly like the product. And if you sign up using my link, they will send me credits toward my own boxes. And with an almost 13-year-old boy in the house, I could use them. Plus, all that good food is going to help me keep recording this podcast for you. Just do me a favor and don't tell Granny. I was so fortunate that I had good music teachers in my public schools all the way through. Um, and the, in my high school, the there was a music teacher, a drama teacher who also taught German journalism, an art teacher, and an English teacher that all loved on me. We had a, a, a group, a tight-knit little group of, uh, you know, my high school friends were also artists. And, you know, the people writing poetry on the back of their worksheets and, uh, you know, learning to play guitars and forming bands and uh, making visual art. And those teachers were so good to us that I think that I felt validated when, you know, I started writing poetry and uh, trying to write lyrics and songs at the same time that I was learning to play the guitar. And I mean, I had when I was a kid, um, but what made it feel real was having these friends and these teachers that would listen to the songs that I wrote. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, at, as a kid, I had this real impulse to share. I just wanted to sing these songs that I was writing for other people. And I was just lucky that I had a, a, a crew that was into that, you know, and, uh, we were supportive of each other, but when I started to try to write songs that had that were connected to old time music in some way. Well, like, so I, when I was learning to claw hammer the banjo, I thought, Oh, well, what if I wrote something that maybe sounded like one of these old love songs or, you know, mm-hmm. something like I, I started to get interested in that. And I was writing down lyrics to ballads. I love narrative songs and ballads. You know, I was uh, copying down in my notebooks, everything that of Gene Ritchie's that I could find and hear mm-hmm. and, 
uh, Sheila K. Adams when I'm when I met her when I've been playing the banjo for two weeks. Like I said, she was so kind and encouraging to me too, and giving me a CD and a novel that she wrote that had a lot of ballads lyrics in it. And so I thought, well, what if I could, or you know, I would like to try to write something that sounds like this. You know, like I I really felt like drawn to those ballads and and the the magic in them especially mm-hmm. um and so when so i wrote a, a song about coal mining that's called working shoes which is about generations in a coal mining mm-hmm. uh family and i played it for jim lloyd he had grown up in a coal camp in southern west virginia and in southwestern virginia and he said I'll, he said i'll identify with a lot of that that you wrote and that's when that felt real to me Yes. I wrote that song when I was in college, uh, early in my time at Berea College, because I was taking a class with Silas House, reading about the history of coal mining communities, because mm-hmm. I didn't grow up in one. Oh, okay. Um, but um, then to to sing that song for someone who came from that place and to hear him say, you know, a lot of that sounds real. And he, he suggested that I tweak one lyric, uh-huh. and I really appreciated that. And um, so... That that's when it started feeling real to me. Yeah, I can imagine having. I, see, I didn't know that you didn't grow up in a coal mining community because I've never been to your town. And yeah, well, it's far it's farther east. Uh-huh. You know, like you would go uh, through if, if you were driving from Kentucky, you know, through the Cumberland Gap, through Lee County, Wise County, uh, you know, past Abingdon, okay. where I grew up. So mm-hmm. it's more um, Rolling Hills. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, also there's Ain't We Brothers, and so that's mentions coal mining too. And so I just I think I always just assumed that <laughs> they, there was some of some of it in your background. Yeah, that song came out of that same class that I took under Silas House, who's been an incredibly generous mentor and friend to me. And um, I came in one day, and he had printed this article for us, written by Jason Howard, uh, and. It was about Sam Hall, a coal miner from West Virginia who had sued the coal company that he worked for because he'd been discriminated against on the basis of his sexuality. And I read this story and I thought, I've never seen a uh, representation of a working class Appalachian gay man before in that way. You know, that worked in that kind of occupation. Right. Which is so uh, coal mining being such a traditionally macho kind right. of occupation. I mean, of course, women have been miners too, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, made important contributions. But you know what I mean? Like, uh, there's totally. stereotypically, it's a male. Yeah, I have dominated. a friend whose whose mother is a coal miner and uh, or recently retired coal miner, but she faced a lot of discrimination too. But I can only imagine that it would have been <laughs> much the same, if not right. worse, for a gay man in the mines. Right. And so the, what made me think, what, after I read Jason's article, I thought Sam Hall's fellow coal miners were insulting him. He was outed. Mm-hmm. His fellow workers found out that he was gay. And then they started insulting him, uh, took the wheel weights off his truck, vandalized his truck and his dinner bucket, you know, like made threats. That mm-hmm. sort of awful stuff. And I thought, how dare they call him less of a man when he's so brave? You know, you have to be brave anyway to go underground and That's be right. a miner to begin with. Absolutely. And then you, you know, he 
was being an openly gay man to some degree in Southern West Virginia. And I, I thought, you know, this is, he's a hero mm-hmm. to me. And, and that he spoke out publicly about his experience and got involved in organizing with the fairness campaign and or coalition in West Virginia. I can't remember the exact title, but he was trying to lobby the state legislature, tell his story so they would know we need protections for all people in the workplace in this state and in mm-hmm. this country, you know. And so he's a real hero to me. And that's uh, the song Ain't We Brothers is written from his perspective. Um, yeah. So I I really love that song and I love that, you know, it is in a traditional style, but it has an activist theme because that's, you know, uh, close to my own heart, obviously, I, as a songwriter and a traditional music performer that likes to uh, address issues of social change through my music, like Appalachian people always have. Mm-hmm. Um, I especially appreciate that. But I have to bring up something that you said earlier before we started the podcast when I asked you, you know, if you were an activist or you wanted to talk about your activism and you said that you did not consider yourself an activist. So could you tell me more about that? Yes. I am so privileged, you know, so I am a white cisgendered man from a working class, middle class family. Um, had a lot of love in my life mm-hmm. growing up good family situation. Um, And I feel that privilege when I, when we talk about activism, Mm -hmm. because it was easy for me to do what I did in my music. It was, I didn't, I was not afraid Mm -hmm. to sing a story about Sam Hall, who's now Sam Williams, the coal miner we were just talking about. Mm -hmm. Because I, at that yeah, at the time I wrote it, I hadn't met him. Um, I was just going by, by what I read, you know, and I, I, I just felt like somehow like at, at that time, 2011, when I wrote the song, things were changing publicly, you know. Um, I mean, you know, there's still so far to go for uh, – LGBTQ liberation for liberation and freedom for all people, you know, in the United States, especially, but like, um, I was not afraid to sing that song because for one thing I thought, well, this is a story about another person. I'm just singing it. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm, he's the lyrical I, but I mean, I'm singing it. My name's also Sam, but I like, I didn't feel like people were going to harm me physically like, you know, uh, gener- a couple generations ago, one generation ago in the LGBTQ plus liberation movement, people were getting beaten. Uh, Absolutely. And, you know, I mean, and still do. That still happens. Um, but I I was because of my privilege and maybe just uh, youth and not being aware of what I was doing. I, you know, I was just wasn't afraid uh, in the in the way that someone you know, that other people have to be, um, or, or that other people have to rise above that. It's complicated. Uh, but I think why fundamentally why I say that I don't really claim that, uh, 
label activist is mm-hmm. because I have so much respect for people like the organizers, you know, for black lives, people who are uh, advocating for the environment in Appalachia, who are putting their bodies on the line. Mm-hmm. Um, they're activists in a way that I, I just want to respect them. And I don't, I mean, I think artivism, artivism. You know, uh, <laughs> I heard Joe Troop use that word. Mm-hmm. I mean, someone, there's someone I respect and admire. Yes, Joe Troop, you absolutely. Know? And, um, so I just feel like what I did was was easy for me in a way that it's not for many activists. Um, maybe that's my own blinders. I don't know. Well, my own bias. I, I understand what you're saying, and uh, you just want to give respect to people that have even more dire or dangerous situations to deal with in their activism. Although I would like to point out that just because you weren't afraid for your physical body still doesn't mean that it wasn't brave for you to write and sing that song. And, Thank you. Um, <laughs> artivism, I think that's, you know, I'll accept that term. That's fine. I, I One thing I also love about it is how it is a part of helping shift the cultural narrative about this monolithic type that we're supposedly, that we're supposed to be in Appalachia. You know, just showing up as yourself, singing the songs you sing, and being the person you are, you are helping to shift the monolithic narrative that all people from Appalachia are white, you know, Trump voters who have uh, Confederate flags on the sides of their truck or whatever, you know, the stereotypes are. Yeah. And thank you. And that's important. Thank you. I am honored to have had mentors like Silas house and Jason Howard and others, friends who they, they encouraged me. A lot. They mm-hmm. would listen to songs like Ain't We Brothers. I wrote it at their kitchen table. I was house sitting <laughs> for them. And so like that that helped me so much. Mm-hmm. That that love and acknowledgement validation from from them. Okay, dreamers, we are gonna put a pin in that interview now and come back next week with part two of our interview with Sam Gleaves. But I'm not gonna leave you hanging. I'm gonna play this beautiful song that he wrote. Ain't We Brothers, accompanied vocally by the inimitable Tim O'Brien, another one of my favorites. And guys, don't tell Sam, but I absolutely think Sam is a glorious activist, but we will also call him an artivist out of respect for his desire for that term. I like that term too. And meanwhile, please enjoy this song. And I can't wait to see you again next week on the What Dreamers Do podcast. I leave you with Ain't We Brothers. I was born here just the same as you. Another time, another day. I'm sure the good Lord took his time, made each of us just this way. I walked beside you step by step. And it never crossed my mind that I would grow up one of the different kind. That didn't stop me from chopping the wood, scraping my knees like all boys should. Going down to the creek in the noonday sun, wringing out my shirt when the work got done. First things first, I'm a blue collar man. 
the scars on my knuckles, dust on my hands. Probably wouldn't have ever known I've got a man waiting on me at home. To tell you the truth, I don't want to fight. I just want to say one thing I'll write to you. Ain't we flesh and blood all through? Brothers too. I took a job and worked right by you. Walked down in that hole beside you. Thought I heard some whispers sound. Got found out. Word got around. Got made out for something I'm not. Called everything but a child of God. Didn't mind to show it out in the parking lot. So I cut my coal with my head hung down, just like a stranger in my own town. Got bitter day by day. Went home every night with the mess they made. First things first, I'm a blue collar man with scars on my knuckles, dust on my hands. Probably wouldn't have ever known I've got a man waiting on me at home. To tell you the truth, I don't wanna fight. I just wanna say one thing. Right to you. Ain't we flesh and blood all through? And ain't we brothers too? Tell me I'm not man enough to set foot in that mine. Go on and tell me that once more to my face this time. Tell you the truth, I don't wanna fight. Just wanna say one thing outright to you. Ain't we flesh and blood all through? And ain't we brothers too? Episode of What Dreamers Do is sponsored by the online Appalachian Flatfooting and Clogging Academy, the only course of its kind and the most comprehensive step-by-step program available for dancers learning this style. I teach beginning and intermediate students the steps and skills they need to dance to traditional mountain music so that they can be confident, joyful dancers and improvisers. Unlike others who just teach the same handful of steps or who just teach routines, I give you not only a bountiful library of steps, but a framework for understanding how the steps fit together with the music. Learn more about the Academy and get started for free with my video tutorial, The Three Essential Steps for Appalachian Flatfooting and Clogging. Visit www.carlagover.com today. It's a holy fight. 